Today, it's very exciting. We're looking at shells. Well, we know them as shells, but our expert is an expert in bivalves. Bivalves, bi, two. Valves, well, I'm not quite sure really. On Formby Beach, there are shells all over some days. Some days there are loads of these long, straight ones, razor shells. Other days, not as many. There are shells that are big, smaller ones. They're all different colours. And some of them have these fabulous holes in them. Perfect for making necklaces. Let's meet our expert. But before we do, for this podcast, we have an activity sheet. You can download that from the Absolute Formby Instagram page. There are activities, fun things to do, fun facts, and loads of ideas of how to sort your shells, measure and age your shells. Let me introduce our expert. My name is Anna Holmes, and I'm the bivalve curator at the National Museum of Wales in Cardiff. Uh, My job is to look after and organise the bivalve part of the shell collection. We have a really big shell collection here. It's over two million shells um, and we help to look after that collection and we carry out research projects on them as well. I mean, these are regular shells that you would find on the beach yes um and um we were sort of looking at them because this particular one that's quite large um and oval shaped and it is big i mean it's as big as my hand almost the oval shaped one um it's oh the otter shell otter shell so that's that's massive it is um and if you so when they're alive, they actually bury themselves really deep. So you wouldn't see them um, if there was actually one on the beach. Um, it would be buried really deep, just like the razor clams do. The razor clam is long and thin. It's big. <laughs> yes, they can get to over 20 centimetres. I mean, I've got one on my desk here that's 23 centimetres long. And how old will that be at 23 centimetres long? So you're looking at something that is almost as long as your forearm. That's right, yeah. So they tend to grow about a centimetre a year, depending on whether there's a good summer with lots of food. So um, if there's something that's 23 centimetres long, it could be anything up to 23 years old. I mean, that is magnificent, isn't it? To be 23 years old and living on the beach. So they are living... In the sand. Yes. All of these shells are living in the sand. That's it, yeah. So bivalves tend to have quite a big foot and they use the foot for actually digging themselves down into the sand to hide from predators. So what we see when we go onto the beach (laughs) with all of these shells are the dead ones. They are, yes. So why do I sometimes see all these shells washed up together? Should I be worried? 
Um, well, sometimes you get big storm events that might um, uproot them from their burrows or um, they might decide that they want to move because the weather's really stormy and then they get all washed ashore together. So sometimes you do get um, hundreds of them washed ashore. Um, it's just one of those things. It's, it's nothing untoward going on. So when you see a big load of them, is that because a razor shellfish lives all the way out in, under the sea as well? Yes, they do. Yeah. So you tend to find razor clams um, low in the intertidal. So the intertidal is the area between high tide and low tide. Um, so, but you actually find them down on the continental shelf as well. So they can be down to depths of about uh, 60 or 70 metres in the water as well. But they're not flapping around in the water, are they? They're living in the sand. That's it, yeah, yeah. So they tend to dig their burrow and they'll just stay there. They don't need to go anywhere to find food uh, because they're, they're filter feeders. So they basically stick their fleshy siphons out of the sediment and just suck water in and they take food particles from the water. So they don't need to go anywhere at all. They're quite happy just sitting there feeding. And and how many, would, would they be called tentacles then? <clears throat> um, they're called siphons. So bivalves have uh, two siphons, an inhalant where they suck water in and an exhalant where they push water out. And it's this method that they actually get um, oxygen and they get food. And they live a long way down in the sand because if I dig a hole for a if a dog digs a hole you wouldn't come across a razor shell no they they do go really deep and they can actually sense vibrations as well so if they sense something is nearby and it they're assuming it is a predator they can actually dig much deeper down as well because I don't know if you've ever tried to dig a razor clam out they can dig fast <laughs> no I haven't actually so they're all living in the sand, is that right? Most of them are. I mean, you get scallops and they do do the flappy, flappy thing and they can swim themselves. Uh, but most of the rest of the bivalves actually dig themselves down and they're quite happily living in the sand. So I have this one, which is the smaller one. It's probably about the size of my, a little bit smaller than my thumb. It's oval shaped like a clam type thing is it smooth yes so it's the surf clam um so it, I, I sent you the identification it's called a raid trough shell but there's a group of clams called the surf clams and they're all quite smooth in a similar shape and they tend to live in high energy environments so in the surf zone so um it's one of those but it's called a raid trough shell that one and, and this is the one, so would this live in the sand as well? It does, but they don't go very deep at all. So they bury fairly shallowly. But you can, if you have a live bivalve, you can actually tell how deep it digs by looking at the length of its siphons, so the tubes that it feeds through. If it has really short siphons or barely any siphons at all, like a cockle, then it's only just below the surface of the, the sand but if it has really, really long siphons, like a razor clam, then it can dig really deep in the sand. And the cockles, are they, is that where you get a cockle picker? They, 
they get them just under the surface of the sand when the water's coming in. That's it, yeah. So they tend to use rakes and they just rake the sand. And because the cockles are really near the surface, they're able to get them that way. We call them the native oyster as well. So are these living in the sand in Formby Beach as well? Um, I'm not sure if these are actually alive. I mean, the, what the photo that you sent me, it looks like it's been dead for quite a long time. <laughs> so so that'll have flushed down from Scotland, will it? Possibly. Or um, maybe they were oysters in Formby a long time ago. Um, and the shells, because oyster shells are quite thick and they're quite robust as well. So they, they will last for decades, even centuries just sat there. So... Do they flap around on the surface or do they um, do they live in the sand? Um, oysters tend to stick to rocks and things. So um, oysters um, are what we call gregarious, so they like company. So you tend to find lots of them together. So um, they will stick to each other and rocks and you'll find um, rocky shores might have lots and lots of oysters all over them. So once they've actually stuck on a rock, they can't go anywhere. So they just sit there. And when the tide comes in, they can filter feed as well. But when the tide goes out, they just clamp up and stay there until the tide comes back in again. Can you see that one? That's like it's like a skull. There is a kind of echinosome called a sea potato that does bury itself and it will sit in muddy sand um, and feed in there. Because we do have a lot of sediment. We do have a lot of mud. Yeah. Um, on some of the beach, there is mud. That probably is the inside of an echinodome then, a sea urchin. A sea potato? Um, let's have a look. It could be a sea potato, actually. That is absolutely cracking. <laughs> that's amazing. Even I can remember sea potato. <laughs> oh, that's, is that the beam razor? And is that as big as that one gets? Because that's only four inches, isn't it? Yeah, they, they don't get very big. So the, the largest razor clam that we have in our waters is the pod razor clam. Um, and that gets up to 23 centimetres. That's the one I've got on my desk. But this one that we're looking at, the bean razor clam, it, it probably only gets to about half that length. And do they have the same life as the other one, but they don't go as deep, do they not? That's exactly right, yes. Um, yeah, so it has a shorter shell and it's probably got shorter siphons, so it doesn't go as deep, but it has a very similar lifestyle. It buries itself in the sand and filter feeds. Back to the bag. Let's have a look what we've got. Right, OK. And then the one above that, now he's different, isn't it? That's a mollusk. Um, well, bivalves are mollusks as well, but this is um, a, what's known as a gastropod. So mollusks are a, a big, big group of animals and they can be divided up into um, numerous groups. So the biggest group is called the gastropods, which includes the snails and the slugs. So this guy is a gastropod. We get these, I would say you get these occasionally you maybe get one of these one a week so what so how old is he um do you know what i don't know how old this guy would be probably about three or four years old 
big, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he is quite sizable. And has he died naturally or has he just been washed up on the beach? Because he lives on, does he live on the surface or does he live in the sand? No, these guys live on the surface. So uh, these are predatory snails and they will crawl around and eat other mollusks and things like that. Um, it could be a small version of the other one that you sent a bit earlier, the, the moon snail. Oh, these are such great names. Moon snail. <laughs> a sea potato. <laughs> these are things that the children can click onto. And if that means that they go in your marine biology direction, how magical is that? That would be fantastic. We're always trying to inspire kids here, get them interested in marine biology. Right. So with the moon shell, does the moon shell... I mean, obviously so smooth and you can see those right the way up into the dunes or maybe that's just a close relative. Um, do, does the moon shell dig into the ground, dig into the sand? Um, it can do, yes, it can bury itself in. It doesn't tend to live like that because it does crawl around and it is uh, predatory. So it is a predator. Um, so, and... If you actually see one alive, the whole animal doesn't tend to fit right into the shell itself either. It's kind of like a slug with a big shell on it. That's the moon shell is like that. Yeah, they, they're really pretty actually to watch. Uh, but they'll be out in the water and this particular one has just been swished in with the water. Yeah, so they tend to sort of crawl around on top of the sand. But they are capable of... Um, burying themselves in the sand if they need to as well but they do tend to live on the sand rather than burying deep in because they need to crawl around and find food so with these ones then so you've got some that are out in the water a little bit further out of the the white horses and and those are the ones so that's like a moon this moon um snail is it a moon snail yes so the moon snail will live the other side of the um the surf if you like um yes yeah, so it, it does tend to live it, it tends to crawl around when the tide is in but that wouldn't come right in would it or do these ones just get caught up that's just they get uh, accidentally the day well we get a seal every so often gets caught up absolutely yeah so when the tide comes in these moon snails will crawl in as well um and so if the tide goes out unexpectedly they could get trapped so you might find one in the rock pool or something like that if, if you're lucky but it's very rarely found in rock pools so they come in with the tide and then as the tide goes out they all point in the right direction and they all head out <laughs> yes exactly because then because then the tide will pull them in and out well it pulls everybody else in and out so it will pull them in won't it absolutely yes so the cockle shell is that doesn't bury very deep at all no um, um, and then the that black uh, a clam, doesn't it? That black, it looks like a flat cockle shell. Oh, that's the scallop. Wait, oh. that's the queen scallop. So they don't bury themselves in the sand. They actually do flap around and swim above the sediment. And so will we have scallops flapping around in the water out, out of just off Formby? Yeah, you might well do. 
if you actually go snorkeling or diving, you might well see some. So it's you could almost divide these into, in my very simplistic way, of the ones that flap around, which is a scallop, the ones that crawl around, which is the moon snail, the ones not very deep, which is the cockle, and then the ones that bury themselves, which actually they're, they're shaped in a very particular way, aren't they, where they can bury down these yeah. razors. Absolutely. They're very streamlined and that does help them dig really, really deep, really fast. So apart from this large one, this the, the big round one. Oh, the big round one, the otter shell. So, but Because that's a big one, isn't it, to be living down deep? It is, yes, it is quite a good size, but it's very streamlined as well. It doesn't, it can't dig as quickly as the razor clams. So when you come to the razor clam, it's the big one is a pod razor clam, is it? Is that the big one? Yes, that's it. So the, the, the largest one that we get in our waters is called the pod razor clam. And the scientific name is called Ensis siliqua. And that's the most common one that you actually get in the razor clam fisheries industry. So that's the one that's most commonly caught and eaten. And what's the common name for him? The pod razor. You might be aware of them under the sediment. Uh, if you're walking along and you can see a couple of holes that are really close together, it kind of looks like an old fashioned keyhole. If you can see those little holes, then there's actually a razor clam beneath it. So you can dig down really quickly and most of the time you'll be unlucky because they dig so fast you won't be able to catch it. And the sand is so full of air, it just separates and they can dig down quite, because it's obviously quite secure when they get down there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So they, they use their foot, so their foot extends like a long fleshy worm down into the sediment and then the foot expands and actually pulls the shell down with it. It's quite an amazing digging mechanism so it can, and it can do that really really quickly. So it almost extends a toe and then the toe goes bigger and then it pulls the whole lot down. Yeah, yeah. And is it the, is it the foot that you eat when you're eating a razor clam? Um, yes, you do eat the foot. It's the whole sort of muscle, isn't it? Doesn't it it, it is. Yes. Yeah, it is very big. So there are so many species of bivalves around the UK. There are actually about 370 species. So it could be any one of those. But there, you do get small ones, anything from around one centimetre and up. And they tend to have quite a fragile shell. So those are probably ones that the smaller wading birds are going for. I see. So those are the tiny little bivalves that the um, the knots and the sandling are eating. Yes. And these are the giant version, are they, that we see on the beach? The, the shells that we see are the massive versions or the, the cousins, if you like. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're different species. Yes. Oh, OK. Describe for me, please, what a bivalve is. So a bivalve is a kind of mollusk. So it's a, a soft bodied animal 
um, and it has two shells that are joined together by an elastic ligament that allows the shell to open and close. Uh, some examples of bifabs are cockles and clams and mussels. And so what we see when we're on the beach is we see the dead ones. Exactly, yes. Because a lot of people think that when they find a dead shell, that the animal has just moved out, but it's actually the animal that creates the shell and is attached to it. So when you find dead bivalves, that the animal would have died a long time ago and the, the soft parts have either just rotted away or been eaten and the dead shell gets washed ashore. And what is a shell made out of? Um, it's made out of material called calcium carbonate. So they, they can be quite fragile, so they can be quite thin, but then you can get some thicker ones as well. So calcium carbonate is a proper, I mean, it's properly strong stuff, isn't it? Are, they, are all shells made out of calcium carbonate? Yes, they are. So it's not just calcium carbonate. There are other things in the shell. There are sort of proteins that, that are in there as well. So it allows a slight flexibility in some. Uh, but so some are, uh, have a higher amount of calcium carbonate in them, so they could be a bit more fragile. Um, if they're quite thick, they can be quite strong. The one thing that bivalves have in common is the fact that they have the two shells joined together by the ligament. But they can be all shapes and sizes and colours. What do they eat? Do they eat the nutrients in the water? Is that a... Um, yeah, so my, most bivalves are filter feeders. Um, so they suck in seawater, which has tiny particles of organic matter in it, and they're able to filter out these tiny particles and then spit the water back out that they don't need. So they're sort of cleaning the water as well, are they? Yes, they are pretty much, yes. So there, there are various projects ongoing at the moment. Um, there's one in uh, the Dornock Firth where they've been restoring oysters. I don't know if you've heard about that project at all. No, I haven't. Where is Dornock Firth? Um, it's up on the, I think it's the east coast of Scotland. Ah, oh, right. Yes, Dornock. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and they're, so pu they're, they're putting the oyster beds back? They are. They're uh, restoring the oyster beds. So um, they've put in thousands and thousands of oysters um, because oysters, um, th there's a video that you can find on YouTube of a, a tank with um, oysters in and it's full of murky water. And then over a period of time, the oysters actually clean the water using time lapse. They've actually shown this. So you've got a murky tank on the left hand side and then the tank on the right hand side is actually what's happening there and then. And it's actually getting cleaner and cleaner as the bivalves are filter feeding, they're sucking all the bits out of the water. So it's quite amazing, really. So all of the shells that we see washed up on the beach, they're all contributing to the cleanliness of Formby Beach. Would that be a fair comment? 
yeah you tend to need to have a lot of bivalves together to actually clean the water but I would say every bivalve counts and then their habitat they um, a lot of them live in the sand um, a lot of them live in mud or clay some uh, bury themselves into rock um, some are actually free live they, they kind of look like tiny little slugs um, and they can crawl around under rocks um, there are other bivalves that actually live in association with other marine creatures as well so you might find we were talking about the sea potatoes earlier if you pick a sea potato up and look underneath you might actually find a tiny little bivalve attached to it and that's just sitting on top of the it's, it's just living with the with the sea potato yeah they they sort of cling on to the spine near the mouth of the sea potato and they're benefiting from when the sea potato actually feeds the the bivalve can actually filter feed from that so it's actually benefiting from living next to the or on the sea potato so when you're looking at the ones that are bur burrowing deep into the sand um, when you say deep how deep is deep it depends on the size of the shell and the size of the siphons as to how deep they can go. Um, I know there is a species that can dig for about, oh gosh, about five feet. It actually lives about five feet down. And this is a species that you find in America um, and it's called a geoduck. That must be enormous, is it? It's absolutely huge, yes. You find it on the west coast of the States and it has a really big shell and really fleshy, long siphons. It kind of looks like an elephant's trunk. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But obviously on Formby Beach, we have the pod razor shellfish. Yes, that's right. So that can dig to probably about, I would say, two and a half, three feet because... They, they bury themselves and so they're able to stick their siphons out of the sediment. But if they feel that there's a predator nearby and they need to hide, they will actually bury themselves deeper. So can you just describe if, if I'm there digging my hole for my sandcastle, um, I'm not going to come across a razor shell, a, a pod razor shellfish, am I? No, not unless it's a dead one because it'll actually sense the vibrations of you digging and it'll dig itself deeper into the sand to hide. And that can just keep on going down and then when the sea comes in, when you've gone away, it comes back up to the surface. Absolutely, yes. And they don't suffocate in the sand? No, bivalves are able to actually close themselves shut um, Razor clams, not completely, but other ones, other sort of clams can actually clamp themselves shut and they can stay like that for days. Because some of these shells, when I look at the, the, the pod razor shellfish that I've got here, it almost has a very, very plasticky um, skin on it. It does, yeah. So the skin on the outside of the shell is, is something called the periostracum. So it's a very, very thin skin that protects the shell and it does keep it shiny as well, doesn't it? It does start to flake off after a while when the shell is dead. And is that does that 
allow it to become streamlined. So when the foot pushes through the sand and it pulls it through, it almost gives it a lubricant, if you like, to pull through the sand easier. It, I, yes, it, it does help. It, it helps the shell become a lot smoother. So when, when it's digging, so the foot, the long fleshy foot extends down into the sand, pushes its way down, and then the foot actually spreads out and expands. And it's the expansion of this that actually pulls the, the rest of the shell down into the sand. I'd love to be able to see it. Well, you'd have to get a glass tank, wouldn't you, really? <laughs> you would, yes. <laughs> a glass tank. Like one of those wormeries. Yeah. That would work, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be amazing. That would be unbelievable. Well, what would you do? Have to have them all lying on the top and then would they just bury themselves in or would you put them half in already? Um. We have actually tried that. If you put a razor clam on top of the sand and then the water is coming in, it can dig itself in so quickly. It's amazing. So one of the things that you can do is take salt down to the water's edge and pour the salt in and the razor clam appears up out of the sand, doesn't it? It does, yes. Um so we, we did this a while ago when, when I first started at the museum over 20 years ago, um, an associate of the department kindly took us down to West Wales to train how to collect and identify marine mollusks. And we were hunting for razor clams there. So we tried the salt method. Um, and if you pour a load of salt down, it can convince the razor clam that the tide is coming in because it's all of a sudden it gets quite salty. Um, so they will stop digging deeper into the sand. Um, so you pull the salt down and then if you dig around it really quickly and try and grab it, you can sometimes be lucky. But unfortunately, when our trainer stuck his hand into the hole, the shell got broken. And when he brought his hand back up, it, there was just blood everywhere. I know it was horrific. Oh, <laughs> so be very careful because these raz these razor clams are called razor clams for a reason. <laughs> they they look like razors and they can be very sharp as well, especially if they're slightly broken. So do be really careful if you're going to be trying this. <laughs> Does that kill it? It doesn't kill it then. But if you pull it out, it would kill it, would it? It it doesn't kill it no um and razor clams can live um out of the sediment and out of water for several days so that doesn't immediately kill it so you could pull it out like that and then you could put you could go and put it back into the water could you and that would be okay yeah yeah you could that would be fine and then it would would it float in then again and then find a place to live or would you be disrupting where it had lived then no, no, they, they can happily just bury themselves anywhere. So, um, yeah, it'll just find another bit of sand to bury itself into and get his foot out and dig really fast. So, but on Formby Beach, we actually have two species of razor, of pod razor shellfish, don't we? Or of, of razor shells. Yes, there are two different razor shells that you sent me, yes. So there's the bean razor and the pod razor. 
and they both live a very similar life. They live straight down. They burrow straight down. They do, yes. And you can tell by the shape of the shell that they're very streamlined, so they can do that really, really effectively. So if can you do me a, a day in the life of a, a, a razor shell or a, is that a is that possible? A... Um, yes, I, I wouldn't say it's an extremely exciting life for them, but <laughs> so um, when the tide goes out, they will just bury themselves deep in the sand and just wait there for the tide to come back in again. Um, they can feel the tide coming in because they can feel vibrations and they can sense it coming in. So as the tide comes in, the water reaches their burrows and then they're able to um, push themselves back up towards the surface and reach their siphons up and extend it out into the lovely water that's filled with food for them. And then they'll just sit there and they'll suck in the water and filter out the food and they'll quite happily do that until the tide goes back out again. When the tide goes out, they'll just suck their siphons back in and dig themselves back down to wait for the tide to come back in again. So that, I mean, that is good. So if you're swimming, I've started sea swimming. Am I standing on all of these? Um, where we are actually is quite high up the shoreline. We're not at the water's edge yes. on the low shore. We're at yeah. more at the very high tide when we're sea swimming. Well, it's dipping, really. Um, we're not standing on the shells then, are we? No, they tend to be found on the lower in the intertidal zone. Um, so lower on the shore and then below the low water mark as well. So if you're swimming around in the low water mark, you might well be standing on the tips of the siphons. You never know. If you're snorkeling, just have a float around and see if you can actually see the little keyhole mark in the sand. Can we do a life cycle for them? Because are they, are there is, is the Mr and Mrs uh, razor shell? <laughs> yes, there are, yes. So some bivalves are hermaphrodites, so they have male and female parts but razor clams are actually males and females. So I can tell you a bit about the, the life cycle. That would be lovely. Yeah, so you have uh, male razor clams, they release sperm and the female razor clams release eggs. And then fertilization is actually external. So the sperm and eggs mix together um, and then they create the tiny little larvae. And these larvae um, are known as villager larvae. And they actually swim around in the water column for a short amount of time. And these are actually classified. If you've heard of zooplankton, uh, they're actually part of the plankton. They swim around in the water column. And then after a certain amount of time, they'll eventually grow to a certain size where they can settle and that they'll bury themselves in the sediment as their parents did. And how old will they be when they bury themselves in the sediment? Um, I'd say it would be a matter of weeks. I don't know the exact age, but um, you can get, if 
I've actually seen tiny juvenile razor clams um, of about, oh gosh, two or three millimetres long. And they would have actually started to bury themselves in the sediment. So as soon as they start to get to the slightly elongated shape, then they're able to bury themselves. And when you say zooplankton, they are millimetres, are they? Millimetres or micromillimetres? Absolutely. They're very, very tiny. It could be half a millimetre or even less. So is that does that all occur at a particular sort of months or moon cycles of the year? Um, yes. Well, razor clams in particular, they tend to breed in the spring and the summer. And I think that's probably because the weather is warmer, so there's a bit more food around for them. And would I know as I walk on the beach that the um, that there is it spawning? Would you say? Yes. No. The 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 eggs and sperm are so so tiny that you wouldn't be able to see them at all. Um. So so we wouldn't know that the that the razor clams are, are sort of having babies at this time, but because of the heat of the water, is it? Yeah. Um. So I'm not sure what actually sparks spawning. It could be the temperature. Um, but then I know um, with giant clams, there is um, it's a, a sort of chemical that was released into the water by one of them, and then the other one senses it, so that releases their gametes as well. So it could be a, a chemical thing or a temperature thing. And the razor shells, that they don't mix with each other. They're not a community. They, they just all happen to live together. Is that... They, yes, they tend to live close by. So they, they have their own little burrows that they've created themselves, but they don't share burrows. And could they accidentally bump into each other or does that not happen either? Or they, they can feel that, can they? I, I would assume so, yes. Um, but yeah, because they tend to dig straight down. I doubt very much that they would bump into each other very much. I just find it amazing that underneath the sat in the sand you've got these razor clams then is that what they're called? Um I call them razor clams. I know some people call them razor fish as well. Especially in the fisheries industry they tend to be called razor fish. The thing is we don't tend to deal a lot with common names. Um so when we're organizing things in the museum things are put away by their scientific names. So we tend to be more used to scientific names than common names. Of course, because it's more exact. Yes, exactly, yes. So common names can vary from country to country, whereas scientific names are exactly the same, whichever country you're in. So you might have a local name for something. Exactly. Okay. Back to the bag. And then that one is yeah, quite ridged yeah. on the outside of the shell. It's not smooth. You know how some of them are smooth? That's it. As, um, what, that's what we call um, sort of radial lines. So they radiate out from the, the top part of the shell. So some of them have got beautiful sculptures. So the cockle shell you've got as well, that's got an amazing sculpture as well. Cockles tend to have these radial ridges um, and spines, and that's because they don't bury themselves very deep in the sediment, so it kind of helps them anchor themselves in the sand. 
So you don't tend to get highly ornamented shells burying themselves deep because they're not very streamlined. So if it has a lot of spines and things on it, it tends to be either living on the surface or just very shallowly buried. Another fun fact. The grey shell that with the beautiful ridges on it. Yeah, so this is a piddock. I don't know if you've heard of a piddock before. Never. I've never heard of a piddock. So they're a group of bivalves and instead of burying themselves in the sand, they can actually uh, dig a hole into rock and clay and hide in there instead. Um, you can find piddock holes in rocks in the beach um, and these guys actually dig into clay as well. Um, so see the ridges on the shell that actually allows them to dig. They sort of swivel and dig themselves through soft clay or soft stone. Um, and some piddocks actually have a chemical that they sort of spit out to help them dig the rock away. They're able to dig their way into the soft clay and then they sit there and stick their siphons out and they're able to filter feed that way. So the ridges on that are the things that help him dig? Yes, yeah, it's able to sort of gain purchase on the clay and it sort of swivels itself ever so slightly to help itself dig into the clay. So if you're near the clay, can you see, that? do they live in groups or do they are they individuals? Um, again, they dig their own little burrows, but you might find lots of little burrows quite close together. And if you're walking across it, would that crush them? No, they're, they're fairly stable in their clay. So that's why they dig fairly deep down. So that stops things from being crushed. Oh, that's the scallop. That's the queen scallop. So they don't bury themselves in the sand. They actually do flap around and swim above the sediment. Well, we have scallops flapping around in the water out, out of, just off Formby. Yeah, you might well do. There's, there is one little shell that I don't think I sent you a picture of. I don't know why. Um, and it, that always has a hole in it. And they're perfect for making little shell necklaces. Ah, right, OK. So why would they have a hole? It's a very, very pale pink, um, almost like a flesh colour. And it's got, if the nose of the shell is that pointy bit and then the round part, it's got a beautiful hole in the middle of the shell. you have to send me a photo of that. Um, and those are all over Formby Beach. Ah, oh, right, OK. Um, so, yeah, that's a bivalve. And it's... Um... That's not a natural hole. That's that's been bored probably by a predatory snail. Really? Yeah. A snail's done that to him. Yeah. <laughs> so they they are really pretty, aren't they? Those. That's a really nice one. So, so what's the what's the story with this shell? Because they these have all got holes in them, on the beach. Yeah, it's a big really? hole, isn't it? 
It is, yeah. Yeah, there's loads of them with holes on. I mean, would it be fair to say that most of them have got holes in them? Okay. Yeah, so um, it would have done this when the bivalve was alive to actually feed on it. Some snails are actually able to, to drill into shells using their, their sharp teeth. And they'll actually eat the bivalve. But it is a natural hole in a way because it's been drilled by a, a snail. But it, the, the, the bivalve itself doesn't normally have that hole. So what kind of a shell is that? A banded wedge shell. So this is a type of surf clam as well. So like the, the raid trough shell, you tend to find them in a similar area to the to the banded wedge shells as well. They like sort of high energy environments and they don't tend to bury themselves very deep. So a high energy environment would be the shore where the white horses are on the beach, the very low tide. Exactly. Yes, yeah, in the surf. So they'll zone. be sort of how when you say don't bury themselves very deep, how how deep's deep? Well, this particular species would probably bury itself um a couple of centimeters down. So to me that doesn't seem well, it's not as deep as the razor clam itself. Gosh, a couple of centimeters is very is very um shallow, isn't it? So it's just under the surface of the um the the sand. Of the yes. So this bivalve has been minding its own business just under the surface of the sand, and then a, a snail's come along and drilled into its head. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got your job, what you do, and where you're based? My name is Anna Holmes. And I'm the bivalve curator at the National Museum of Wales in Cardiff. Uh, my job is to look after and organise the bivalve part of the shell collection. We have a really big shell collection here. It's over two million shells. Um, and we help to look after that collection and we carry out research projects on them as well to further our knowledge. Um, I have a couple of research projects on the go at the moment. Um, and if you want to learn more about them, you can actually find me on the museum website. If you search for my name and type in museum, uh, you'll be able to find me quite easily. And what are your research programmes at the moment? Uh, my projects in particular? Yeah. Um, so I have one on the go uh, that is looking at transatlantic rafting bivalves. So there are Caribbean bivalves washing ashore in Great Britain and Ireland, and they've actually travelled across the Atlantic on ocean plastics. Um, and some of them are still alive when they get here. Most of them are not. But um, this project is looking at uh, if they're actually found in Wales as well, because we have records for Ireland and the southwest of England and parts of Scotland but um, we're not aware of any records in Wales at the moment. So my project is to get people out on the beaches um, and having a look at plastics to see if these bivalves are attached to them. So it tends to be the sort of robust plastics like discarded bait buckets and pots and crates 
um, shells have actually been found on a piece of car running board as well that's floated across the Atlantic. Um, and if you look at the ridges or under the lid or in the rims, you might actually find some bivalves attached to them. So the project um, is actually taking place in Wales, but I am very happy to accept records from out of Wales as well. I'm interested in getting records for all of the British Isles. So people can find more about it on the, the website. I've written a few blogs about it. So if people search for my name, if they type in Anna Holmes and National Museum Wales, uh, you'll get to my staff page. And if you scroll down, all the blogs are there. And that'll tell you a little bit more about the research. So the best time to look for these ocean plastics is after a big storm. Um, and what I'm looking for are the robust plastics. So things like um, old buckets and bait pots, even ropes and things that you might find up on the shoreline. Um, if you have a close look at them, they might actually have some shells attached to them. So a lot of the shells that attach to these plastics have little byssus threads like mussels, or they can cement themselves onto plastic items as well. So if you have a really close look and see if you can see a shell attached, that might well be something that's traveled across the Atlantic. So I'd love to know about that. Um, so then moving on, so you're doing two projects. What's your other project? How interesting is that? <laughs> so the other project has been on the back burner for a little bit. Um, I've been waiting to get a, a student in to help me out with it. Um, and it's on post-larval bivalves. So tiny, tiny little baby bivalves. Um, and I'm looking at 10 species um, and just being able to identify them when they're really small, because when they're tiny, they sometimes are a very different shape to the adults. So a lot of people might completely overlook that particular species when they're looking at them. Um, so the aim of the project is to put together a, a guide to help people to identify these really tiny juvenile bivalves. So if I'm listening, how do I get a job like yours? How do I get into this field? Okay, well, I did a degree in zoology um, and I was lucky enough to, because jobs at the museum don't come up very often, um, so I applied for a job. Um, it was one of the low level jobs, just retubing and relabeling specimens. And this was over 20 years ago. Um, and I've been here ever since. And I've actually um, gained all of the knowledge that I have now in the job and actually working with other people. And you go to, um, do you do different conferences? Were you at a conference last week? Yes. So, um, I was at a conference called Coastal Futures last week, um, which uh, happens every year. And it's usually in London at the Royal Geographic Society. Um, and everyone um, in the UK gets together. Um, so it's people in museums and universities, from the government, uh, non-government organisations, um, from charities. They all get together. And we listen to lots of different talks about what's happening around the coast in the UK, various projects that are on the go. So it's an amazing conference to go to. 
Um, and that's when they were talking about the oysters and the Dornock Firth. So that's, yeah, it's really, really And it brings know. the whole of the projects from the UK together. Absolutely. So um, we, we tend to go to these conferences um, once a year, but then there is an international conference that's just about mollusks that happens every three years. Um, so I was lucky enough to go to that a couple of years ago in 2019. How fantastic. So how do you spend each day for your job? My day is very, very variable. Um, so I could be in the fluid store topping up the preservative in the jars um, or I could be curating shells in the shell collection that's uh, just above my office. Um, I could be preparing to carry out a workshop for volunteers or paid participants, or I could be carrying out contract work to identify deep sea bivalves from West Africa, um, or I could be planning our next exhibition. Um, I could be writing tweets or blogs, or answering inquiries, or editing scientific papers, or taking photos of shells for my next paper. Um, or I could be writing descriptions of shells to add to our website on British bivalves. And those are just a few of the things that we do. It's just, a, I mean, what a great job. Oh, I, I thought of another fun fact. You were asking oh, yes. me about fun facts and talking about how old razor clams live for. And you were amazed that they live for yeah. 20 years or so. That's actually not the oldest bivalve. So um, giant clams in the tropics can live for about 100 years. But then there's also a species called the ocean quahog that we get in the northeast Atlantic, and that can live for over 500 years. And how big would that be? Surprisingly, not very big at all. Um, so the ones that we have in our collections, they can be up to about... 14 or 15 centimetres long. They sometimes live on the sand surface. They're really, really heavy. And because they live in sort of deeper waters, they don't get to move around very much or they'll bury themselves slightly in the sediment. So some shells actually have uh, annual growth lines on them. So it's a, quite an obvious line around the outside of the shell. Um, and because most of them tend to do most of their growing in the spring and the summer, you can count those lines and you can actually count how many years old they are. Now, that's a fun fact. I mean, some bivalves do have lots of other little lines on them, but certain species have these particular obvious lines on them. And those are annual growth lines. So kind of like a tree. If you cut a tree down and you've got the rings you can count the rings to see how old, how old it is. You could do the same with certain shells. But when you're looking at the surf shells, they've got little tiny lines on them. Do, does each one of those lines show how old it is? Um, it might not be an annual line, so you you couldn't really rely on that although the photo i'm looking at that you sent me i can see one two three obvious lines so that probably is about three years old there's another fun fact 
<laughs> and when I was talking about the, the oldest bivalve that's over 500 years, that's actually how they worked out how old the shell was. But they actually had to cut into the shell and they counted over 500 lines within the shell. So was it dead when they found it? Um, no, it wasn't. Um, so this is quite um, a common species that's used for clam chowder. Um, and they, they actually collected about 200 species and they picked the one that looks the fattest because it's not always the biggest in outline that is the oldest. Gosh, that is unbelievable, <laughs> isn't it, really? So, you, I mean, so they've got to take it easy on eating clams, haven't they, for clam chowder? <laughs> well, they, they tend to use it as just a base. They, they put other clams in the clam chowder itself as well, but... Uh... It is part of the, the fisheries industry in the North Gosh, Atlantic. That's, so there must be millions of them then, are there? And they're obviously a not species. a rare species. So, shells are bivalves. How fantastic was that? Thanks to Anna Holmes from the National Museum in Wales for her fabulous knowledge. Thanks for sharing, Anna. I didn't realise that shells lived in the sand. I didn't realise that pod razor and otter clams lived right underneath us when we're walking onto the beach. Next time on Forby Podcast, we'll be exploring the spirals of sand that we see down at the shore. Who's actually making those? We're also going to be looking at, well, they look like straws. Who's making those and what are they? Join us next time on the Formby podcast. Today we're going to finish at Formby Beach with a song by Stephen Gerrard. Stephen Gerrard's music celebrates Formby and the people that have lived here. Bill Tasker lived as a hermit on Formby Beach and here's Stephen Gerrard's celebration of his life. Tasker lived on the beach and loved it. Well, we now know why. See you next time. Bill Tasker was a hermit who lived on Formby Sands in a broken down cabin. Hidden in the dunes He spent his days beach calling For whatever he could find Remnants from another world The one he left behind No one knew exactly why He chose this way of life A soldier from the great war He'd seen a lot of strife some say there were scars from the battle's endless noise Broken and downhearted, he followed his inner voice He was a quiet and solitary man His footprints fading in the sand the Western winds and ever-changing skies shone in his eyes
walk the lonely shore each day Carrying an old grey sack With a tribe of weary stray dogs And a couple of scrawny cats I watched him from a distance As he followed in his stride As he filled his sack with bits of coal Left by the tide tiny cabin warmed by an old wood stove works of Keats and Shelley Bible and an old chessboard on a bed of moss lay a bird with a broken wing it was his way to be a friend to the smallest of living things he was a quiet and solitary man his footprints fade Western winds and ever-changing skies shone in his eyes. The years they slowly took their toll. Bill was getting old. He was found by two fishermen, hungry and cold. They sent for Dr. Diamond, but all was in vain And he left for his spiritual home, as poor as he came Those who knew him smile and say they see him to this day As he walks along the shoreline with his canine company Seabirds follow him so close they could almost touch this man who spoke so little and somehow said so much He was a quiet and solitary man His footprints fading in the sand The western winds and ever-changing skies shone in his eyes podcast is an independent production. If you'd like to work with us, contact us on formbypodcast at gmail.com. There is an activity sheet to go with this podcast, exploring all the shells on the beach, activities, fun facts, things to do. If you'd like it, you can download it for free from Absolute Formby on Instagram. That address again from Instagram's Absolute Formby. See you next time.